All right, welcome to What is the Phenomenology of Spirit? I'm here with uh, Mika, Eric, and Chitan. Um, all, um, all, all four of us, I think, have have read um, and related to the phenomenology of spirit in our in our own way. Um, and I think what what we want to achieve with this conversation is is I think very simple and and modest. Um, and and what what I mean by simple and modest is is just asking almost like a, a naive question: what what is the phenomenology of spirit? It's of course it's a book. Um, it's a very daunting book, and it's a very important book in the history of philosophy. And I think uh, myself included, when first approaching the phenomenology of spirit, I think it comes with a certain emotional weight to it in the sense that um, it can be very intimidating to approach it. Uh, the language Hegel's using is very complex. Uh, it's very dense. Um, even reading one page can be can be overwhelming and you can lose yourself and it, and it's like, how do I approach this thing? Um, so I think what we want to achieve in this conversation is is just sort of a, a, an overview for people who might be um, coming to Hegel for the first time, thinking about approaching the phenomenology of spirit for the first time and sort of giving them a sense of what is this thing? Uh, why is it important? Um, and and maybe a little bit about how each of us have have related to this work and maybe have used this work uh, in our own careers. Um, so mm. so I can I can start from from my point of view um, with I think I want to start with my own process of becoming. So I, I started with an interest in science. Um, I was always interested in human human science, so to, so to speak. Um, I started my career at, at the intersection of biology and anthropology, and I was always interested in human evolution. Um, and basically, in my my speculative thinking, I basically took the worldview of human evolution as, as far as I think I, I could have um, in, in my career in terms of trying to think about the human past um, and, and then also speculating about, about the human future. Um, but even in that situation, when I was sort of using the, the evolutionary worldview, um, and I think in that context, the, the evolutionary worldview is kind of like a, you know, it's a dominant worldview in science today. So, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of scientists are, are, are using this worldview. Um, I, I was still left um, with enormous questions about myself, basically. You know, like, so I, I thought a lot about the human past and the human future, but was st still left with, with a lot of questions about myself. And I think that um, this is a general problem I see among scientists today is, is that a lot of them are sort of exhausting um, a certain scientific worldview and still left with enormous questions about the I, uh, still left with questions about consciousness and, 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 and where, where, where do I fit in this picture? And, and I think that that's where I sort of came to the phenomenology of spirit or probably more accurately where I came to thinkers who had been influenced by the phenomenology of spirit and then sort of tracing their thought back to that book um, and, and sort of recognizing, okay, this, this book is, is helping uh, a lot of people sort of come to terms with their own, let's say, historical positionality of their eye um, within the larger drama of life and existence. Um, and since reading the phenomenology of spirit, I can sort of say, you know, okay, there's, you know, there's a there's a dialectical structure to the book um, that really starts with consciousness, and it unfolds through different stages or forms, 
um, of spirit. Um, ultimately, you know, we can go through them in, in turn, like self-consciousness, reason, spirit, religion, absolute knowing. Um, and so it's basically like this dialectical unfolding of spirit, which is ultimately supposed to bring you to some sort of reflective stance of, of, of what Hegel, I suppose, would call absolute knowing or, or, or the standpoint of, of philosophical knowing. Um, and I think that that has been, you know, the more it sinks in and the more, you know, the more I sort of um, reflect on this, this process of coming to be a knowing subject, um, the more it helps me to almost feel at ease with the complexity and chaos of my existence. Um, I think that's how I'm relating to it right now. Um, and before sort of passing it on, I can sort of say that that how I've come to sort of see the book as a whole is is not in any way antithetical to science, um, but actually a kind of a, a science of the notion or a science of the concept, which is is very, um, you know, paradoxical because it includes self-relation. Um, it, it includes a sort of a, a radical confrontation with with the truth of the self and and and. and um, that as it turns out that that i think makes an enormous difference to how conventional science operates so <laughs> that's that's mm -hmm. like sort of a, a little intro to how i relate to the book um but i'm excited to hear jump in with you guys and and also just sort of see where where this goes yeah, yeah can i go for continue, continue from here yeah i'm hearing an echo but maybe that's all right so thank you for 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 inviting, I'm honored to be discussing this topic, but man, you've all, all also put us to the task. I mean, it's some such a daunting task to begin to tackle this work like head on. And it's, it's a book uh, that can be even for a professional, like academic, really a tough nut to crack. And it's, I would imagine it's one of those books that's even, even if you are really a professional reader, you, you're going to find it hard to finish it. And also I would guess that it's one of those books that most people like to begin, but they just leave it made way because it's demanding. I mean, I've discussed with professors who like to remember their youth as a philosopher, as a student that's Oh, they had this circle of reading it, but they never got through it and everything. So it's it's a big big piece to bite, but it's not impossible since Hegel was the person who lived and breathed and fucked and eats, ate and shat and everything. And um, so um, I would say that it's it's quite impossible to grasp the kind of like bare essential of the work and maybe trying to aim for some kind of like bare essential in the whole work would be kind of pointless. But also not aiming at the essential would be perhaps foolish. So we have to be quite humble, as you said, presenting our views and careful. And yeah, I'd like to maybe go on a little bit about what does the phenomenology of spirits from Hegel really mean to me, like personally, I, I cannot but 
think that it's sort of like a fate or some kind of a destiny. I just personally, I needed somebody to say things that I could recognize to be true. For me, it wasn't about who is this guy and Jörg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel from somewhere. And I'm, I mean, I, I don't really buy into the things of basic premises of somebody like Kant or Schelling or Fichte, but with Hegel, I really can't find the place where I would really be at odds with his basic worldview. So I think I, I needed to someone who I couldn't easily disagree with, someone whose thinking wasn't just a piecemeal thing that I could chew and then shit away. I mean, he stuck on pretty much. I mean, I just delved into the work and and after reading, I would, I would say that since I've been reading academic philosophy and everything, I think that um, after reading it, I felt like there was this transformation in my own view. I started to view the whole philosophical scene with a different lens after that. I think that the works shows to me that some philosophical problems that we find today, they are really dead ends. There are there are solutions to different to some problems are pseudo problems and, and I sort of lost interest in some of the academic stuff that I was reading and it was sort of like melancholic point in my life and some something like losing something that I actually didn't even have at the beginning so that that's what I would say about my own like personal um involvement with the work currently but yeah. Um, I'll pick up from there and give my uh, thoughts on the on the book and, and how it has affected me. Um, I came to the phenomenology of spirit shortly after, I guess what I would call a kind of philosophical awakening that happened after some significant changes in my life <clears throat> that uh, prompted me to need to look more inward at um, the cause of my thoughts and desires and behavior. And Hegel was, was just one of those names that was kind of in the ether at the time. And so I, I, I picked up the book <clears throat> and determined to read it. And when I sat down to read it, obviously, like, so, like everyone else, it was nearly impossible. But, um, in my uh, experience and in my graduate work, PhD work, um, I had I've spent decades reading um, te ancient texts in their original languages at a very, very close level, whether it was the Greek New Testament, the Hebrew Bible, Ugaritic tablets, Aramaic papyri. <laughs> and so what I decided to do was to take those skills and apply them to reading Hegel. So I, I determined to just sit down paragraph by paragraph and very slowly work through the text as if it were a scripture. You know, I would read the text the same way that I would read, um, you know, a, a book from the New Testament. And you know, and very carefully annotate, research, you know, I, I would watch lectures on each paragraph from Gregory Sadler. 
And, and I did that for, for quite a while, for several months, just maybe one paragraph a night, two paragraphs a night. Uh, and I would write about each paragraph too. So I would, I would try to digest everything that I was reading such that I could actually put it into words myself. And what I found was that uh, I, would, I would actually be able to read and understand the text. Uh, and it was, it was magnificent. And what I found early on is that its formative effects were setting in very quickly. You, you don't have to get through the whole book to, to have it have a, 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 form, a formative effect. I remember just reading the preface where he actually describes this point where subjectivity splits and the knowing eye, as it were, donates a piece of its subjectivity to the concept. And the knowing eye watches the concept sort of auto autonomously think itself through its movements. And I actually then observed myself doing that very thing. And it really shocked me. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I knew, okay, maybe there, there's, there's something to this, you know? <laughs> uh, when we actually are, are attentive to observing our own ways of thinking, you begin to see all of these movements that Hegel discussed, you know, in, in real time. And that is precisely what this text is. Uh, in, in other words, what you are reading about, you are practicing. So there is a... Um, um, you know, what, what I'm trying to think of the word, uh, um, homo iconicity. There's a, what you are reading, you're doing. And, and so as you read this, you are going through the same, uh, movements of, of conceptual thinking. Uh, and so what it actually does is it trains you. And this was Hegel's, uh, his, his intent was to train the reader, to prepare the reader to be able to read philosophy, to be able to read what he would write later in the science of logic. And, uh, and I think that is the, the whole uh, point, the whole value of reading the phenomenology of spirit is that it forms you, it forms your thinking. And that's exactly what it did for me, and, and one of the, I think the things that, that it does in particular, and we'll talk about the dialectic a bit later, but Hegel never gives you a leg to stand on. Once you think you've, you've got a position, he undermines it and contradicts it. And you, and you begin to learn how to do that in everyday life, whether it's uh, politics or uh, whatever's going on in the world, whatever you're thinking about conceptually, you learn to negate to find the point where a concept undermines itself and contradicts itself and so you you know you start talking like zizek you start you start saying well isn't it the opposite <laughs> right <laughs> and, uh, and and that's exactly what uh, you know what the the effect of reading reading hegel is and and i'll say i i well i was doing a very slow and close reading obviously that that would be a project that would take years to complete and i knew i needed to get through the text at some point very quickly and what i found is that after just you know several months of actually reading the text 
very slowly and carefully, and I did I did a fair amount of that in German, is that I could then later on just pick up the text in English and read it at a fairly normal pace. And I could get through 25, 30 pages a night, maybe, and, and move through the text and get through it. So I, I want to encourage people who are out there who are daunted by this task is that, that, that you can do it. But not only do you have to put in the, the work to do it, but you really have to think strategically about it. Think about how how you read the text and don't be afraid to slow down and take it bit by bit until you get the, the necessary vocabulary and, the, and Hegel's style and, and, and you begin to get comfortable with it. Um, but it, it is possible and it is worth it. Uh, it is a life-changing experience. And uh, I'll, uh, I'll let Chetan pick up from there. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Carol, for having us here, actually. Uh, it's a really nice discussion we are having. Um, my engagement with Hegel actually started not that long ago, maybe a year back, year and a half back in that sense. I know I started reading Hegel alongside I started discovering Zizek, to be honest. Um, but my engagement with, uh, you know, a lot of times in a true Hegelian fashion, we create a history from um, the context we are in, in that sense. And you now when you look back at your own um, philosophical sort of journey, you you try and you, you end up discovering uh, the roots of what you found in Hegel you know, much earlier than when you actually started reading it in that sense. And my own background actually was I did my post-graduation in linguistics. And at that point of time, we were reading a lot of Chomsky in our department, primarily because the Chomsky teacher was very good in that sense. You know, and uh, for some reason or the other, I found two things uh, coming up with the discussion on syntax and Chomsky and um, the thinking, which was that he was trying to apply the scientific methods to an object which itself didn't sustain a scientific inquiry in, in, in the modern sense, in that sense. You know, the, the question of universal grammar as, as such is, is not an object like a, you know, like Searle would put it, it is not an ontological objective object in that sense. You know, it is an ontologically subjective um, question. And uh, on the other hand, uh, the interesting thing about Chomskyan method was that it worked on language. They did give you results, you know, and I was sort of struggling with this contradiction within that paradigm. And in, in that time, I discovered a, a philosophy sort of, I started auditing courses of philosophy um, in, at IIT Delhi, a premier institution in India in that sense. And, and one of the first things that the philosophy professor told us and which actually asked me to think post Chomskyan, which was a very Hegelian thing in that sense. So his, his point to us was that philosophy actually doesn't engage with, you know, giving you new, new meaning about the world or new things about the world. It is actually, philosophy starts at the point of paradox, at the point when you cannot find something new to, you know, in that sense, uh, posit about the world. And it is, in that, it is in that context when I discovered Hegel, I found that come to the come to us with full force, you know. He in many Hegel in many ways completely inverts Aristotle, at least for me when I started reading it, and I then later on read that what what is he doing in that uh, you know in that in that sense. So he completely inverts Aristotle for me, where Aristotle tries and finds truth in non-contradiction. Hegel tries and finds the truth in the contradiction itself. You know, and in many ways, dialectical method actually is a method through which you can do that. 
you know that which is why it's so difficult to pin it down to any fixed um, uh, you know and reading actually hegel's book uh, um, phenomenology of spirit specifically in uh, is an experience of sorts where at least two or three things which which happened to me personally are on one side um, hegel as eric rightly said doesn't allow, give you a leg to stand upon he doesn't allow you to uh, you know um, he 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 asks you to commit to a position also and then he and then he asks you to move away from it also he doesn't give it to you from the starting itself that uh, this position is a false one or this position is this or that you know he is asking you to in many ways be able to first accept a certain position and then detach from it and then step back from it then see its contradiction and that process was very healing for me at least you know that process was not something that i'm reading a text and i already know with what orientation i have to read that uh, um, that position in, the, in 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 that in that manner it, it allowed me to uh, uh, you know develop these ideas within myself rather than simply reading them in some philosophy books as a you know form of you know stratified histories that we read in that you know the second thing it did was it allowed me to think about knowledge and it it allowed me to reconcile knowledge and experience at least in my own um, and i was an engineer before i i, I my own you know early readings were in um, science science in that sense and in many ways uh, this question of in what to weigh the scientific knowledge reconciled experience was always there with me you know hegel allowed me to give me show me a way in which these two things can be reconciled that the cracks in your experience are the very conditions for truth in in some senses and in in what ways do we um uh, think through that 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 kind of a you know and it's not it's not it's not a simple leaving out of science it's not an anti science uh, attitude in fact it is a way to ground science in your experience if anybody tries to do that i think he would he has to discover hegel there's no other way to in our time that there's no other way to think through that that problem uh, any with any seriousness you know and i think i i just uh, leave it there and i think the discussion will move on and we'll discover things for ourselves Yeah. Yeah, thank thanks for that all of you guys. Um just picking up just picking up directly from where you left off there um Chitan. Um I want to say that in in my personal reading of the phenomenology of spirit um <clears throat> I actually read the the text itself before reading the preface um to the text. Um and I did that sort of on the sort of the 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 hint from from the forward in in the the Finley edition that actually it's best to read it that way or they advise to read it that way because that's how Hegel wrote it uh that he wrote the text and he wrote the preface at the end of it and it was a very interesting experience reading it that way um and and a lot is discovered sort of um if if you, I think if you approach it that way um one of the things is that in the preface um hegel explicitly gives the uh formula that that what he's what the book is really all about is against uh this formula of a equals a um it, it's basically this this formula of uh, non-contradictory identity um and and understanding in that context it's it's very simple that that really hegel's enemy in this book it seems is i would say this this feeling of oneness or this intuitive um absolute um 
and that what he's uh, trying to approach is ultimately um, a science of self-becoming, I feel. And he feels like the intuitive absolute or the A equals A is um, somehow a obfuscation or a way in which spirit hides from itself or remains fearful to itself or actually uses um, a comfortable truth to shield itself from the uh, what he calls the unrest of life. You know, that, that you can, you know, you can't get away from the, the, what he calls the sheer unrest of life. And the fact that you as a process of becoming in order to discover your truth, um, will, will have to lose whatever it is you think your current identity is. Um, and that, and, and I think that that is, um, to sort of bring this around to all of our personal reflections. Um, I think that basic message or that basic lesson, at least that I take away from it, um, is so helpful for living in the 21st century. Uh, because uh, when you're, you know, when you're alive in this century, it's it's almost like um, you are forced into the sheer unrest of life. You are forced into this accelerating pace of change where um, things are things are changing so quickly and and life is so unpredictable and uncertain um, that if you sort of remain within a sort of static identity um, and you don't have a tool with which to become, you know, that being sort of the tool of seeing self-contradiction as a um, as a way to I want to say, discover new depths of your own self-truth, um, then, then you can really get lost. Um, and I, and I think that, that in, in that sense, like that, that's how I sort of understand, um, what you were saying, Chitan, about how Hegel reconciles knowledge and experience that, uh, and, and that things are already reconciled in the crack. So like the, the, the tendency of A equals A is to sort of say, I don't want any crack or I don't want any failure. And, and Hegel's basically saying that, that, that that's the perfect way to get lost in a false truth, that, that the only way to find your truth is in the crack and in the failure. Um, and that in some senses is a very, a very paradoxical um, way to live. Um, most, most people don't, don't live that way. So, so I, I think that, that and, and I think that, that one more thing I'll say on that, that notion is that I think that in doing this, I think Hegel really does work towards a science of consciousness because um, in, in science, um, you have to uh, engage in many experiments in which you sort of uh, fail, but you aren't necessarily involved in the thing. Um, the failure is external to you. Um, whereas in a science of consciousness, uh, you are going to have to make repeated failures and, uh, your very identity is the thing that's failing. So, so in, in that sense, you, 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 you have to include yourself in the thing. And, and I think that that is, um, a very important lesson for, um, contemporary science because, because one of my dominant feelings, um, since sort of becoming more familiar with Hegel is this feeling like 
the, that scientists are actually not on the level of, they're not on a, a proper standpoint of knowing, self-knowing, because they, they aren't really there. Like they, 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 for example, they, they know a lot about whatever they're trained in, in their specific field. Um, but it, it's not, it's not a standpoint of self-knowing. And, and, and I think that that is another major thing that Hegel wanted to leave us with in this book is, is not just, okay, we're in the scientific age and now science is the spirit of the age. Um, but he also said that, um, uh, our society in some sense, um, has a sort of, um, don't know what the right word is. Uh, science has a sort of, the, our society rather has a sort of um, responsibility to make sure that spirit is acculturated to the level of, of, of knowing. Um, that it, it, it must sort of understand how it came to be what it is. Um, or else, you know, spirit won't uh, know how to, to, to use science properly, if that makes sense. So it, it's how I understand it before passing it on is is just this book sort of shows you the way in which spirit comes to know itself. And then from that standpoint, I think that that I mean, a whole vista of possibilities open up that that, uh, that, that just aren't available without this this sort of standpoint. Yeah, I'll, I could pick it up from there uh, because I, I think you've you've um, touched on, a, on some very important things that make the phenomenology of spirit very relevant to today because what, what Hegel is doing is what he calls science, uh, Wissenschaft, which I guess we could just call it the business of knowing. Um, and it's I think it's unfortunate that in our day that, that word science has been so restricted to the so-called hard sciences and those those sciences have become in, in themselves restricted to a kind of what Hegel would call a one-sided or, or dogmatic non-speculative uh, uh, way of thinking although theoretical physics I think gets gets around that to some degree um, and it is very much a philosophy um, but there is, I think, a need in our world today for a restoration of science in this fuller sense of speculative thinking. Um, and that is what Hegel is, is doing. And, and what, he, what he calls absolute knowing or this identity of identity and difference is ultimately what he calls science. And, and so, you know, you, you get to the end of the thing and you, and you say, well, what's absolute knowing? Well, it's science. Well, okay. <laughs> you know, it's, it can be kind of a letdown. If you don't understand really what he's, what he's trying to do is give us uh, the, 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 the tools, the mental cognitive tools to engage properly in science. And, and I think we, we desperately need this um, fuller, expansion and, and restoration of this concept of, of the philosophical sciences. Uh, if we are to, as, as you mentioned, Cadell, to, um, to raise spirit to its proper place within our moment in history. 
And I think the phenomenology of spirit gives a, a good um, outline of, of how that ex actually happens or should happen. On that note, I, I, I would say, I think that the phenomenology of spirit in particular is the site of, or the potential for a great coming together, a great universality that I think we have not seen in in philosophy or in 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 um, uh, in intellectual history, um, you know, philosophy itself and and so many different fields of science have split into their various factions. Theology has gone its way. We have we have continental philosophy and analytical philosophy, and we have mathematics and physics and all of these different factions that are antagonistic towards each other. And I think the phenomenology of spirit is uh, one of the grounds in which people are rediscovering a, a, a certain universality and we're getting people together from so many different uh, fields and so many different, um, you know, whether it's, you know, analytical or continental philosophy or, or linguistics or psychoanalysis. Um, and, and we're finding a, a commonality. And that is precisely because what the phenomenology of spirit teaches us to do is to do that hard work of negation so that we cannot sit tightly in our, in our camps and hurl insults at the other uh, without doing that negation of our, of our own self. And so we're able to reach out and find our place in the other. So the continental philosopher can find him or herself in the analytical philosopher and vice versa, you know. And I think one of the one of the things where where Hegel really demonstrates this is is in his section on religion, where he does not define religion as the, the way we would maybe define religion as Christianity or Islam or what or whatever as this group of theological beliefs and clergy and, and such but the way he defines religion is something that's almost inescapable like even the most ardent atheist and non-religious person still engages necessarily in a religious expression of spirit and, and so what Hegel is able to do is, is provide uh, at the level of what we call spirit here, uh, something that is a universal experience. And so whether, whether you are a Christian or a Buddhist or an atheist or a continental philosopher or a mathematician or whatever, you can find common ground in Hegel. And that can become the site, I think, of a great universality and, and a healing, I think, is, is the word that, that Chaitan used. Yeah, excellent. If I can continue here. Uh, so uh, um, I heard uh, Chaitan say something very interesting, that, that the object uh, is sort of like a self-procured object for consciousness in Hegel's phenomenology. And, um, well, the standard type of like 
some type of universal recipe for reading him him in phenomenology is is to think of the kind of like uh, opposition between the consciousness or the formation of consciousness with its own objects and how this object shifts places with the formation then undergoing some kind of transmutation after it. And I, I think that here we could perhaps delve more into the notion of experience in, in Hegel. He uses the word Erfahrung, uh, which doesn't denote the type of immediate sense experience that I would right now have of the computer of myself speaking or so on. It, it denotes an ever enriching thing, something that accumulates, something that enriches itself through its development. And here, I also, I, I think today in, in we are living in, in somewhat, well, well, the correct word is topsy-turvy world that Zizek uses, but I think it, it's somewhat depressing times for somebody who's intellectually inclined today since too much of, well, now I'm going into this whole, whole uh, beautiful soul line, but uh, I, I see slander and stupid bickering going for an argument for too many times. So it's such a low grade and second quality products that are presented as like philosophical works. And it seems as though it's the way today we are in such a rush to just produce new papers, new discoveries and what whatnot. So that there isn't too much advancement in thoughts. Um, Thoughts don't develop and they, they're just left every, everywhere. There's holes where the writer has to just point that somewhere someone has solved this issue and so on. I mean, Hegel does something very different when he is writing about experience in the phenomenology of spirit. And um, also, I personally, I enjoy very much his way of being able to bring it always down to the most immediate, like the opening move of the work, the Zinglichkeitswissen, like sensuous immediacy, and with the arguments from language, he then is able to show how we have to accept the kind of move towards perception, the kind of move towards understanding, the move towards self-understanding, and so on. So that's what I would like to highlight here in, in connection to the point about universality here also. I would like to take a discussion back to the question of science that Kettle raised actually. And this is something uh, which has been very personal to me because uh, from a very young age, I wanted to be a physicist. You know, and uh, when you look back at that fascination with physics when you had, you know, when you were like eight, nine, seven. You know, those ages in that sense. Uh, the fascination was that you're doing science of science in some senses. That physics in some senses applies to everything, every other science in this world, everything else. You know, all knowledge in some senses can be broken down to principles of physics. And um, uh, this, this question actually emerged with Newton in, in many ways, this paradigm of, uh, and we do know that this kind of spreading of physics actually in many ways um, 
how should I put it? You know, it 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 sort of um, it sort of uh, impoverished the spirit of science itself. You know, when you you know it, it, Hegel would say it, it creates some kind of unhappy consciousness. <laughs> you know, when you when you think that you can apply something that you're doing across the board, and Newton actually gave you that kind of a very strong system. You know, and at that time, all the observations were so consistent with what he was saying that there was strong reason to believe that probably this can happen. And what is interesting is that the content of physics itself undermined it from within it, as it usually happens with the coming of quantum mechanics. You know that debate between Einstein and uh, Niels Bohr, and those debates become precisely interesting because physics undermines its own claim from within. But for whatever reasons, that claim became unhinged from its particular local practices and it became spread over the whole scientific um, you know um, enterprise itself uh, that claim still exists in many many ways where you think that you can function um, within the broad scientific framework uh, through this idea that science can simply be applied at a level of form without a content across the board no, this issue of determinant negation in um, Hegel is very important. That in what way does content emerge? Uh, uh, no particular content emerge from a context in that sense. Um, and I realized that very early when I was, as I said, when I was doing Chomsky, that dissatisfaction was very clear to me. That I'm not in many ways um, uh, satisfied simply by knowing that this can be applied all over without actually working it out for yourself. Um, you know, and. And that question of science, uh, and I just sort of say one more thing over there, and I'll, you know, <laughs> you know, and that question of science, it came to me much later, is a tolerable subject. And when Hegel says, and which is, I think, the central thesis of the book, substance is subject. In what way do you elevate the substance to being a subject? It is the same process that at least we are going through in science. And if you look at what is the 21st century science today, 21st century science is not physics anymore. If you really ask that question, really, it is biology. And if you look at biology, we have to even ask a very serious question, in what way biology is a science? We don't know anymore because biology is a set of practices and techniques. And it is claiming to apply all over even without giving you what Newtonian physics gives you a certain consistent structure to do that. So today the questions of genetics, questions of uh, you know reproduction that, that are coming up with biology, which in you know, a pandemic has brought that to the fore for us in many ways. No, actually, is a very Hegelian moment. When when Rijak says 20th century of, century of Hegel, it's a very, very Hegelian moment that we're living through. That what happens to a science when it completely reduces itself to the substance? When it completely reduces itself to its own experience of this practices and techniques without having any relationship to the object it's dealing with, the other in that sense. And in what way do we have to think through this problem? It's, it's an open question. But I think it's a very Hegelian moment that we're living through in, in this question of science. No? Thanks. Thanks so much, Chetan. I, I de definitely want to pick up from here because I have so much sort of um, I have so much emotional resonance with the idea that that Hegel is is not in any way anti-science, but actually bringing us to a, a proper spirit of science, and that and and that the, it is actually possible to. Um, there's a there's a chapter in in Less Than Nothing where Zizekas is it possible to be a Hegelian today? Uh, and, and I think that, it, it, you know, he, he's asking in a very provocative way, but I think that 
in in a very in a very real sense, um, there are so many things going on in biology and quantum physics which seem to have a very Hegelian quality to them. You know, like and and I think that the substance is subject is is precisely where I would sort of see that that transition taking place um, in in the history of science. Um, I think, of course, Newton provided a certain form um, to, to, to science. Um, and I think that in the spread of the deterministic worldview and the spread of the Newtonian worldview, um, what was lost was precisely the subject. And, and I think that, that all Hegel's trying to do is um, apply the scientific method or apply the scientific spirit to the self-notion. Um, and so, and so, include within scientific substance a place for a, a, a subject. Um, and when you think about um, uh, basic problems like wave-particle duality, uh, when you think about in you know in quantum physics, um, where the observer has some sort of role in the constitution of the substance. Um, very different from, for example, the problem that um, Galileo was wrestling with, with planets and the church, um, and a very paradoxical uh, phenomenon when you compare it to the problem that Galileo was dealing with, with the church, with, you know, the, you know, basically him saying, you know, the planets revolve around Jupiter, whether or not you're looking at them, whether or not you believe in it. You know, it's not, it doesn't involve you as a subject, whereas in quantum physics, I think we're, we're dealing with the opposite phenomenon. And then in biology, I think as well, um, we're when we deal with concepts like autopoiesis, um, concepts like autopoiesis are concepts that seem to have a far-reaching uh, ground in biology, sort of as, as the self-referential behavior, uh, self-referential phenomena, I should say, um, and that autopoetic behavior is seen as the the almost the the ground of a new life science and and, and many of the many of the dimensions many of the dynamics of autopoiesis seem to be very much at play uh when hegel's describing the dynamics of the spirit and the, and and the this process of 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 self making so i i think ultimately what i want to come to here is that um oftentimes the the form of the idea of science makes the mistake of thinking we don't have to worry anymore about the genesis or the coming to be of the content. And I, and I think that the genesis or the coming to be of the content, the contingency of experience is what Hegel's almost trying to include within the notion of science. Um, and, and, and I wanna say also that in doing this, even though in the phenomenology of spirit, he's articulating six stages, basically. Again, consciousness, self-consciousness, um, uh, uh, reason, spirit, religion, and absolute knowing, with absolute knowing being here the science of the notion. He also says that future humans or future man um, could take a different path to absolute knowing. Uh, that that it doesn't necessarily it's not a strictly determined path in that sense there is a radical contingency 
in, in sensuous immediacy and experience. But that ultimately there is something absolute about the nature of absolute knowing. There is something about absolute knowing that no matter what contingent path spirit takes, it will find itself in this location or that from this or will find itself in this standpoint, which I think I want to emphasize. Uh, I think Eric did a, a fantastic job of, of identifying, which is basically the identity of identity and difference. And, and the, the, the level to which this is such a simple notion, and at the same time, it seems like so much metaphysical problems are coming up about identity and difference. Um, I mean, I even like the more I think about it and the more I talk about it with some people, um, it seems like this, this problem of the absolutization of difference um, has become such an enormous problem and 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 as a sort of a reaction to Hegel and, and sort of like there's this fear in Hegel that you know everything can be sublated back into the identity and this is sort of like a, a tyrannical uh, <laughs> this is a tyrannical move. Um, but at the same time, when you absolutize difference, it's kind of like you wind up with nothing. So, so you, you, you lose all, you lose all process. That's at least my experience of it, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there for whoever wants to pick up. Well, I want to pick up on a little bit, um, on this discussion of science and, and I, I would all, I would just, uh, make the proper attribution of that definition of absolute knowing to, uh, Todd McGowan, um, who's does such a wonderful job in, in the content that he's produced on Hegel. Um, but you know, in, in, in science, particularly in theoretical physics, there there is this um, this motivation, this search for uh, a theory of everything, the the God equation, right? There's this this single theory, the single particle, a single something that will solve all of the mysteries and bring everything together into a nice clean um, uh, equation or or theory, and and I think this is precisely the opposite of, of what Hegel is trying to lead us towards. Because what, what this is, is, is trying to define a closed universality. Uh, Lacan would call this actually phallic, <laughs> so the search for a, a, this God equation or theory of everything is, is something very much within the masculine subjectivity, this, this phallic enjoyment. Uh, it's a closed universality, and and what what I think Hegel is is trying to get us towards is something more of an open universality, um, a feminine, uh, in in the, in the Lacanian sense, feminine subjectivity of a of a not all, an open an open universality that is able to admit difference, um, and and that is the the very difficult thing to do because I think it does touch upon. Uh, not not simply um, you know the way that we go about cognizing these things, but it goes back to uh, our own ways of of enjoyment and and the way that we as subjects and this is where we have to I think we have to reach out to Freud and 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 Lacan and others uh, to say that that a part of that subjectivity is this. A logic of desire and if we don't understand that when we are doing physics then 
then we've we've I think we've missed it. And I think Hegel is is precisely the point where we begin to arrive at an understanding of that. Hmm. If I may, I, I might steer the discussion a little bit on, on another direction here. Maybe it relates to this issue of sciences and so on, since well, I would like to highlight the fact that I think that the kind of mainstay of Hegel's argument concerns modernity, I think, in the phenomenology of spirit. But the central task of the work is stated in terms of a theory of knowledge, epistemology. And we would expect then to find some kind of discussion of like justification, evidence and so on. But instead we find him progressing from the standpoint of consciousness. Um, but ultimately I, I well, the kind of like, um, well-known, I think, truism about Hegel's phenomenology is that it's, it's a theory of knowledge which takes the concrete human history to be a significant factor in it. And it's a theory of knowledge that places various, ad, various attitudes of consciousness. I mean, it's not just anything and so on. Attitudes towards objectivity in particular into some kind of successive and progressing form and it is perhaps possible to read phenomenology then as some kind of long winding and continuous uh, argument in theory of knowledge but this really makes it tough tough for us to discuss it today if we think of hegel as doing some kind of standard epistemology you know that's not the case i mean he's radically different since for him it really concerns our being as modern individuals as lost in this like groundless world of who should we believe who's who's got the authority and so on and modernity i think it's the kind of time of individuality it's it's a time of self-determination of the of us and it's also a time of deepening sense of isolation and withdrawal and I think that the kind of wager of Hegel is that we can only uh, understand this situation if we have the proper philosophical uh, seriousness, determination. And it is possible then. Um, if we focus on the issue of modernity, we perhaps are able to somehow overcome some of the complexities of our life relations. Uh, and. Um, we can think of perhaps modernity in terms of the dispersal of avenues of life in, in general in our society and so on. Um, I think it's kind of like characteristic of our modern life that life is fragmented here and there, torn apart in various directions. When, for example, your demands of family life can be radically at odds with your working life and there is no pre-given order for anything of this and there is no like ultimate authority to say how are you to govern your life since modernity itself is about self-determining and that's at the heart i think of the work itself the idea of 
the idea of belonging to some kind of organic substantial whole it's what modernity itself as a phenomenon shows to be false i mean tradition and lineage do not mean the same to us that they did to our elders and in in modern in phenomenology i think that the question of modernity becomes the question of how it is that we became the beings that we already are and i would state here that the phenomenology itself presupposes spirits already at the beginning and at the very first paragraphs of the chapter on spirits he states that everything so far has only been an abstraction from spirit already from the standpoint of spirit because we are already in this dispersal of modernity and yeah we can also go about the direction that somebody would like here to i think i'm supposing somebody would like to see us to say that the notion of spirit is controversial and what it means and so on and ultimately what we are looking at in spirit is uh the standpoint of uh collectivity of communality of shared forms of knowledge that's what i would say about it that was brilliant mika um and and i think I, and i think and i think an important turn in the conversation perhaps away from away from some of the also important discussions on hegel and science but towards sort of really situating hegel in in the political context and i, I would maybe link just very quickly what you were saying back to i think hegel's central idea in the preface which is that he's really against this intuitive feeling of oneness and 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 the intuitive feeling of the absolute um and and much more leaves us with this feeling like you're saying of this this the problem of modern spirit lost not only modern spirit lost but also modern spirit aware that it's lost um, like how you said it, there's this deepening sense of isolation and withdrawal. And even the weird thing at the end of the preface where he says that the individual must ultimately forget himself or herself. It's it's a very weird way he ends the preface saying the individual ultimately has to forget themselves. But, but you know, the, the basic idea like that spirit is fragmented and that any sort of naive attempt to reclaim this fragmentation with an intuitive oneness is to sort of be avoided. Um, and before passing it on, one of the things in, in the preface that actually sticks with me almost more powerfully than anything else, and there's so many things that stick with me in that in that chapter, but that he says that absolute cognition or God or divine cognition um, is not only the labor of the negative, but he says um, to be found in uh, the triad of seriousness, suffering, and patience. And this is very different from a lot of ways in which mystical or intuitive consciousness understands divine cognition. I never find people who are focused on mystical or divine cognition to sort of link it closely to these categories of the labor of the negative, namely seriousness, suffering, and patience. But in my own sort of deepest alone with the alone moments, and even treating like, you know, my religious consciousness as the alone with the alone, 
these three categories, I just think are absolutely essential um, to reflect with and to be with. So I just wanted to, 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 to maybe link. Yeah. Well, there is this very interesting movement that Hegel makes at a number of points where uh, he describes this great effort of consciousness to achieve something but then there's a failure and consciousness retreats withdraws back into the state of what he calls the unhappy consciousness and he he breaches this subject early on in in the the section on consciousness but then it turns up again much later on in the in the book um i think it's in the in the latter part of of spirit and because there's a, a, a similar movement where spirit tries to a, a accomplish something in, in the collective and there's a failure of that. And so the individual consciousness retreats from spirit, retreats from, from that, back into that state of the unhappy consciousness. And I think that's something that is, is probably a, a universal experience. I think we've all been at that stage where we have tried to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, tried to accomplish something at that level, and, and there's been a failure and we've had to retreat back into ourselves. And, and what Hegel does is, I think, very ably describe that and then ably describe what comes next, you know, how we get back or what, what the effect of that is, what we've actually gained from that experience. You know, there's there's not just something negative about that failure, but something we take away from it that enables us to to move to a higher plane of consciousness. Um, and so I think, you know, there's something very practically relevant to to that. I'll sort of um, uh, I'll take the question of modernity forward and I'll sort of link it back to what we were discussing before this question of physics and biology in some senses. Because I think it's important to look at what is the mod modern moment today. And it's not an easy question to ask, like Mika was asking in that sense, you know, in what ways do we think through modernity from where we stand today? Because, you know, as Hegel would say, history is written from the context that you are, you know, in in that sense. And if we seek that transition from, uh, I think, physics to biology, and what Eric was pointing out to us, that physics in that sense was masculine. You know, it was trying to give you, in some senses, the the must signifier, the you know, the final authority upon all of the sciences. Uh, what happened in biology is interesting. Uh, even that form which was physics was trying to give was not needed in biology anymore. If you look at the debates on pandemic today, they're extremely instructive to tell us where we are. The debates sort of go in this direction that if we want to think about the ethics of doing research on viruses. And if you look at that discussion, uh, what are the, what, how do you locate those ethics? And essentially what you are saying is that, that what China was doing, whether the whether pandemic happened with China or not, is a regardless, irrespective question. I'm just looking at the ideological uh, spectrum around it in that sense. You know, what China was doing actually is the only way through which you can take biology forward. That is where there's a wide scale acceptance of the fact that on one hand, we might not want to allow that kind of research in our own country, 
but that kind of research is necessary for any future uh, protection from this kind of movement forward so in this sense we are no longer even in the domain of patriarchy you know that's that point when we actually had a form to this master signifier in some senses we were trying to give some structure to it even that is not there anymore as djack would very rightly points to us you know that patriarchy is not or the this masculinity in its in its direct form as it emerges in patriarchy is not the biggest evil today in fact it is it is it is something much more um radical than that you know this collapse into techniques and practices that we see in biology actually gives us a sense of that that simple emergence of the feminine as it looks you know in one hand you can look at biology as very feminine you know there is particularity which cannot be universalized if you look at the non all of lacan you know this 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 particular which cannot be universalized and so on and so forth biology would satisfy many of its conditions on on first glance at least if you're not looking at it very seriously and yet it can be much more violent there is there is a serious threat of isolation over here where even the earlier security which we thought of as modernity 20 30 years back a security of the um um the masculine patriarchal system is also not there and i think this is where we need to actualize hegel for ourselves in 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 its true uh, potentiality the potentiality of hegel is that it the it it is it allows you to be completely free from that external um patriarchal system it allows you to give you a way to think about it that you can it's not what you can function without it it is a, it is it is much more radical claim that the only way to function about it is through this route now you know and when hegel sort of claims god is a subject when he reaches there at that point you know and in if there is any ethics in hegel it is it is ethics of recognition in many senses you know this question of in what ways can one individual recognize the other other, other individual i think if there's any way to move forward you know it is to of taking the hegelian logic to its to its end you know there is no there there is no going back to even those patriarchal forms which are making making some stable ground for us to work through even those are being taken away in our times in a very direct sense and something to think about i'm not sure how you how you run the question let me let me jump in there because the when you take this 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 ethics of recognition to the end in hegel to me it's it's sort of like an an abyssal recognition that you, i mean you take it to death i mean that's the the form that you you take it to and and that and that i think links to your point that um not only do we, are we no longer in the domain of a, a patriarchy which can obviously save us with an eternal life you know god the father in heaven um but also there's a really a radical form of violence that 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 opens up um and i also just wanted to make a quick comment more more on just the sort of reaffirming the brilliance of both what you and eric have been mentioning about this transition from masculine logic to feminine logic um and how that kind of maps quite nicely i think in the transition from physics as the dominant science to to biology as the dominant science um and specifically for those who are are interested in actually undertaking the work of reading the phenomenology of spirit i think that hegel so clearly articulates this shift in his chapter on reason 
Um, if, if I don't know if any of you guys are, are can recall that the chapter on reason where he makes the transition from, okay, rational spirit uh, tries to formulate universal laws and that these apply to the inorganic realm. Um, but that these in no way apply to the organic realm because of the particularity and the autopoetic nature of the biology. Um, and that all spirit can do is sort of um, uh, recognize this uh, tendency, you know, habits or tendencies of, of, of organic matter. Um, and he does say, he does say, interestingly, about um, the spirit of the earth or the telos of the earth that there's this telos towards oneness, but this oneness is absent. You know, it's, it's just this tendency. Um, and, and really we, we, we do have this, uh, as, as, uh, sort of, I started and, and trying to connect to Ch Chet and this ethics of recognition, which is ultimately abyssal, which I think is, is important to, and, and, and that, that, I mean, that, that, that applies to a situation like coronavirus, right? Where, we are in it. We're in an a bit. You know, we're we're led to these situations, which are which are ultimately abysmal, where there's no other that can control and contain the potential violence. What I take away from this, if I can say, is that, that um, what we really see, I think, in today's times is that essentially there isn't too much new going on from Hegel's standpoint, except maybe he didn't understand capitalism enough. And we need some marks there, but essentially we are seeing the same type of conflicts, the same debates, the same struggles that already puzzled Hegel in the phenomenology, but only even more exasperated today. And I think that the kind of problem of many con conflicting claims to us knowledge should be thoughts of in terms of there might be religious or semi-religious or kind of crypto-religious cults uh, who claim to have some kind of direct knowledge of God within their hearts. And this prevents them somehow from spiraling into negative doubts about God's existence, about what's the situation like. It gives them comfort and security and everything. And then there is the conflicting type from a secular person claims to knowledge from purely standpoint of insight of knowledge in reason knowledge by methods usefulness so on so the religious person can claim for example that the secular type is wrong when he is asserting knowledge about things where only the feeling heart so to say can rule over over the things since they are of that nature for the religious person whereas the secular person would prefer certain shared methods of rationality and so on so hegelian question uh, really comes at this juncture and concerns the question of is there some type of norm or standard of knowledge in this connection of these differing worldviews and thinking about, for example, the chapter on reason, it ends up with the sort of like an abrupt uh, ending with Kantian ethics and, and the uh, reason as formally self-consistent, as testing the law, does it withstand to the 
law of the of the non-contradiction and on the other hand you have a person who might be sort of like proclaiming to have a knowledge to to have the law in there right in this, that and he gives examples and so on and hegel's point about these two opposing views would be that they need to be really taken together to form some type of continuity with each other and when we take one apart then we have no means to understand either of them and and a movie comes to mind that it's so good depicting this type of like uh semi-religious intuitive knowledge and the secular kind of a lutheran type you need to really see the movie uh, my dinner with andre with which displays this type of like discussion about how should we operate in the world what's the proper means how, how should we know thinking about the corona situation who should we trust what's the correct direction those are the questions here i want to pick up on that and and some things that, that chetan was was talking about in in terms of this the notion of patriarchy and and such it, and i think to pick up on mika what you've been talking about especially in modernity and and the reconciliation of, of sides what what hegel does not like is what he calls dogmatic or one-sided thinking um and and it's precisely this speculative philosophy of the dialectic that he exhibits in the phenomenology that i think he, he thinks can can do that very thing that cannot be one-sided but it can actually reconcile opposites but in a particular way and and i think the where he does this the best and i think it's really the almost the epicenter of the book is where he's talking about phrenology uh, which is the pr the practice of trying to determine people's spirit their their in their their mind their their um temperament and such by the shape of their skull bone and he sees in this precisely this this kantian antinomy where reason comes up against a contradiction and he and he says the being of spirit is a bone and for for hegel he sees this as this intractable contradiction that phrenology comes up against but what he does here is he sees this as precisely the point where reason is able to actually do something remarkable and that is to to hold both of these at the same time and and so what we would want to do is maybe go to one side or the other we would want to say no spirit is spirit it's it's not there's nothing material about it you know that and that would be the the you know an extreme idealism right there is no material there's just the spirit the the, the other side is is materialism a strict materialism there is no such thing as spirit at all it's all material right and what hegel does by by maintaining this contradiction is he uh, he both materializes idealism and he spiritualizes materialism and and i think he shows us the way forward through that in his system which is both 
an idealism and a materialism at the same time. And, and you know, if we see today, our, our, I think our political spectrum divides precisely along these lines, where we have the left that is more materialist, and we have a, a, a right that is more idealist. And if we are one-sided in our thinking on either, then we're going to miss something that that is actually at the level of of spirit and the way forward for in in you know for us through modernity i think is not to retreat to one of those sides to to be oh i'm i'm a strict materialist and so, or i'm an idealist and but but to find the point where both of those sides meet their contradiction and need each other in order to go forward uh, just sort of um, budging in here, uh, I wanted to respond to actually Mika's, and I have a slightly different reading of Hegel in that sense. I'm, I disagree with Mika in that sense that you know nothing post Hegel has happened. In uh, uh, I personally do not read Hegel like that. In fact, to be honest, if we really ask our questions uh, seriously, um, can Hegel think through this transition from physics to biology? You know, Hegel can think through the violence of the physics. You know, that, that is clearly there in Hegel in that sense. If you look at the debate between stoicism and specul speculative thinking, the unhappy consciousness section, you know, you can very clearly see this, this violence of the physics being there. Can think Hegel think violence of, the, violence of biology in that sense? In what way can a science be, become this violent, you know, much, much more violent than physics could ever claim to be, and yet it doesn't have this same form? Uh, I think Hegel cannot think a lot of things. I'm, I'm, I, think, I think when, when we read phenomenology spirit, I'm very modest about it in that sense that 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 Hegel can't think a lot of things that are happening today. You can you can think about radical repetition. You can think about you know drives um, the whole Freudian Lacan moment, uh, heterogeneity as we all know, and maybe you know things like entropy, order. You know you can find a lot of such things. What is important, at least to me in Hegel, is that. All of these things, in some ways, remain uh, or become visible to us through Hegel only. You know, a lot of the questions that we are asking today, today could only be asked once we go through Hegel. So, at least when I read Hegel, uh, I, for me, the, uh, the the idea is not that Hegel will open up everything that I'm I'm, I'm doing today, but instead a much more modest and a much more uh, simpler claim in that sense, which is. Uh, in what way does uh, does everything that I'm reading today actually has gone through this 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 sieve, you know this this Hegelian um, um, uh, you know uh, in Hindi we call it the channi I don't know you know you, in English you call it the sieve but I, I don't know if you use it in your house or not you know things that you put through water in and the water flows down and you know <laughs> you know it, it, Hegel becomes that sieve through which you have to you, you have to go through to actually even ask these questions these questions become visible to you. Which maybe Hegel could not think himself, and it's not important that Hegel should have thought of that. You know, it was something that Hegel came first to a land from which all our journeys become possible in that sense. You know, it's almost like there's a path to some place, and Hegel reached there first, maybe accidentally so. But if you have to go through that to that place for every day now, you have to pass through that path where Hegel put his, uh, you know, step upon. It is in that sense that I I, I think through. Uh, uh, the Hegelian uh, moment for myself in, in in that sense. I don't know. How would you all you know um, think about it? Yeah, if I may qualify my point a little bit. Yeah, you might have caught me pants down here, but wait a minute. Uh, 
Um, I might say that, uh, yeah, there are a lot of things I mean, that Hegel could not think of. And it's become a sort of a, like a hobby for certain philosophers to do these lists. And I've read them. And so but I was saying that not much of crucial interest, I would say, has emerged in our shared field of public uh, discussion of what's the key struggle in claims towards knowledge uh, in these like uh, a, a general theory of how to understand oneself in the world. In there, I don't see, I mean, I'm here underlining, I think certain philosophical movements with this claim that they don't invent too many new points that Hegel could not already discuss in some way. And my approach here is to go and read Hegel more uh, closely than the philosopher did in the previous century in these issues. But I, I, I'm sure that uh, there are a lot of things emerging everywhere that Hegel could have no idea, but there's so much that he got, yeah. Could I say that that perhaps what brings together, I mean, potentially what Chiten's saying and what you're saying, Mika, is um, this notion that that Hegel actually functions as as a sieve, and and that 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 by and you know, and that that sort of like, um, you know, that one of the problems of 20th century philosophy is that they were trying to like overcome or negate Hegel, as opposed to like working through Hegel like sort of honestly and thoroughly and like, you know, being, you know, to really go through, you know, uh, the process of, of um, understanding what, what negation means and what including oneself and one's project means. And, and um, in that sense, also like as sort of like a, what I would say, like the Hegelian spirit in the same way that the Newtonian or the Darwinian spirit moved through our, society um that if the hegelian spirit were to move through our society in the same way um that it would almost function as like a sort of sieve for for individuals to sort of move through um different standpoints of knowing almost before they um come to approach modern topics in quantum physics and and biology and and others uh, another subjects it's it sort of um almost like a yeah like like uh i don't know i've come to think of it almost like there are many scientists or even other fields where it's almost like giving a child a gun you know like before they before they you know they like should you really be using that weapon you know like do you really understand yourself well enough to, to use that weapon <laughs> that that type of thing i'm not <laughs> that that's that's sort of all, one of my sort of well, notions it, there it is interesting to think about this in terms of the, the the history of philosophy after hegel and up through our present day because i think after hegel died there was this um knee-jerk reaction because hegel was so popular and, and he was i mean he held the you know the, the chair of berlin for so many years and and there was this res almost resentment in the air um for some for so many people um, Schelling and Schopenhauer and whatnot, 
and the Hegelian school itself split and was divided against itself. And so the Hegelian project really just kind of died. And, and it was taken over by, you know, Nietzsche and, and, you know, then uh, the rise of phenomenology and French uh, critical theory. And I think, you know, that where there was a, you what know, about Marxism? Well, yeah, and, Mar and Marxism, yeah. And there was, um, which is in its own kind of failed Hegelianism, <laughs> in a way, you know, uh, a divergent he Hegelianism. Um, and there was a, an, an abortive attempt at, or kind of a resurrection of Hegel through uh, Alexander Kojev. And we see the effects of that in Lacan and, and, and so many others. But I think we've had to go through so many movements of spirit in order to recover uh, a Hegelianism for today. And I think that I think we are in a position to see that happen. And people like Zizek and the Slovenian school have done such a wonderful job of 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 giving new life to Hegel through um, different avenues, psychoanalysis and so on. Um, but, but yeah, I think we, we are in a position today, I think, to recover Hegel and to apply Hegel that was probably not possible before. There is, uh, there's a friend of mine who's doing his PhD from, uh, you know, one of the universities in U.S. And we always, he, he's sort of working with a professor who's a delusion scholar in that sense. And he constantly looks at, you know, he, Hegel as the threat in some sense. It's interesting, you know, how in a classroom space, uh, you know, Hegel has become that pejorative word. You're a Hegelian. <laughs> you know, if the professor has to say that you're thinking wrong, so the reaction comes, you're a Hegelian. You know, and when me and him have a, you know, have our uh, chats once a month or sometimes, uh, what the discussion that in, that surprises me in, the, in this kind of uh, very aggressive reaction against Hegel that is also emerging in our times, which you have to become very conscious of, especially in social science uh, uh, circles. And I think uh, this aggressive reaction against Hegel actually is a symptom of the Hegelian movement we are in, more so than this 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 positive affirmation of it. You know, you know when somebody's as, as it happens with Freud in the clinic, na, uh, the 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 mother in my uh, the dream, the woman in my dream was not my mother, and you know it was the mother. <laughs> you know, it is in that very 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 much in that in that spirit when when I see uh, this complete anti-Hegelian, and even people who have never read Hegel, actually uh, in in many uh, instances uh, very instinctively, even if they they will not even quote Hegel over there instinctively have this um, uh, this understanding that that you have to go through him. And I keep on telling my friend that what your professor is actually telling you, and you should take it seriously. He's not saying something which you should ignore. You should take it very seriously and go and read Hegel, actually. This is the moment to read it. Because when he's saying that, you don't know what that means. He says, I've never read any of these things. He's coming from practice, going to a PhD. And he said, I don't, you know, he tells his professor, I've never read Hegel in that sense. And I'm saying, this is the moment to read it. This is the point when you're getting that kind of a reaction for what you're saying, you know, and that is, and it is in that, in that spirit, I think that we need to affirm uh, the cracks that Hegel is bringing with himself. It is coming with a lot of force, whether you're Deleuzean, whether you're Foucauldian, whether my own uh, sort of initial uh, research was in Foucault, biopolitics in that sense. 
No. No, and Foucault has written against Hegel, and, but, but very interestingly, one of these places, he said, the only philosopher I read seriously was Hegel only. You know, Foucault was, was a very close reader of Hegel, it turns out. So it, you have to go through him, even if you have to, you know, find your footing on each, either side of that, that spectrum. I, I want to I talk about this, this negation. Uh, this like, me, I guess it's like a meta-negation. Because <laughs> it, it, it's, it's almost like, the way, I, the way I'm reading it more is like, you can tell who the real philosophical events were by the strength of the negation against them. Like, for example, and like, and, and, and like, I think that there's really a misunderstanding specifically among young philosoph young philosophy students that like, if they read a book by Foucault and he's like, like somehow negating Hegel, it's like almost like, okay, we can take that as evidence that we don't need to read Hegel. It, it kind of like totally misses it. It's like, like you're saying, like Foucault was, it's like, wait, Foucault was only able to take that position because he took Hegel seriously and was reading Hegel seriously. And like the same thing with Marx, right? Like, like Marx was able to somehow like turn Hegel on his head, but because he's reading Hegel closely, like, it, like there's something, again, there's something about, and, and that's, I think like one of the interesting things about what Hegel was trying to do with the phenomenology of spirit was, He's basically saying, this book is not so that you identify with me forever. This book is so that you move through me and leave me behind in some sense. Like, it, it, it's almost like this is how you become a philosopher. And, and when you look at the greatest philosophers of the last two centuries, it seems to me like a great majority of them have become that through working through Hegel. In one yeah. in one way or another, well, it's, it's like as as it said of of uh, Lacan is that when Lacan is being uh, when he says he's being Hegelian, he's the least Hegelian. But when he's actually opposing Hegel, he's being the most Hegelian. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's yeah, it's like you know, it's where where Hegel really should become a vanishing mediator. You know, he should not be this towering figure that we jostle over whether, oh, I'm a Hegelian or anti-Hegelian, but he should become this vanishing mediator that enables us to, to move forward with, without him. I think that's, yeah, I think that's fantastic. And, you know, you, we, we see this, this very phenomenon with, with the venom that is levied against Lacan from the mainstream uh, psychoanalysis, and, uh, not to mention psychology. People who have never, never read Lacan know nothing about him but they spew the, the, you know, hatred and venom <laughs> for why? I don't, I don't know, you know, why? Because they know deep down somewhere that he under will undermine their own position. And, and that's what Hegel obviously is going to do. Whatever position you take, even his own position is, is, is going to undermine. Yeah. This is exactly what I was pointing out earlier, earlier that I think that, this type of like bickering about stupid things and imposing some type of like arbitrary standards towards Hegel and everything like, yeah, that like, that like, I mean, who doesn't feel in their skin when they are pushed towards that type of like activity, there's something incredibly false about it. 
But really what's working towards Hegel is the, it's, it's the notion that Eric Ewert pointed out, the notion of immanence, it's what works towards Hegel's favor always. And this would make Hegel a troubling figure for somebody like Foucault, for example. But really, I, th I think that um, if we think about phenomenology of spirit as proposing some type of uh, genuine theory of uh, knowledge of what it is to know, then it might have to produce some kind of a criteria from its own developments, its own terms, from its own grounds, and a formation of experience that he would discuss, such as religious experience, would have its own terms, its own norms that it uses to evaluate knowledge. And when we are going through the academia, we find people who have a criteria of knowledge, which even with without being able to explicate it, they have some kind of criteria, they evaluate persons such as Hegel and take them to be lacking without even asking the question, is Hegel subscribing for this? What does he say? What what's are, are the formations of experience for Hegel? Why are they established the way they are? Uh, so the basic procedure, if we think about it, is that some figure of consciousness has an understanding of itself. It has a material ground, one could say. This is the answer the, in itself of, of what it is. And then it go, embarks on the journey, one could say even, uh, of explicating what it is, what, what's, what is this ground? And this type of split between the uh, in itself and the being for oneself, that's the type of split that Hegel uh, fully leaves open. It's, it's the contingency which is turned necessity, one could even say, perhaps. Uh, but uh, Hegelian truth, what is truth, the absolute? What, it, it is not something that's imposed from the outside. It's not external limitation. It's, it's not some type of like measure that would give us control over things. Um, and there is this uh, formulation from the introduction that since he was dealing perhaps with Kant most of all in the phenomenology of spirit from time to time, and not, not throughout, but Kant is always the figure to keep in mind. I mean, you don't understand Hegel without going through Kant and Kant's transcendental uh, idealism. And well, perhaps it would be a good time also to think about why Lacan thinks that Hegel is the most sublime hysteric. Maybe some kind of explanation would be in connection to what Hegel says in the introduction that uh, perhaps the uh, fear of truth, I mean, sorry, if <laughs> that's a Freudian slip, but uh, fear of error. I mean, what does Kant do, basically, if you boil him down to the basics? <laughs> Uh, what Kant is doing, he's preparing the methods of knowing. He's preparing how should we know the thing, how, how should we approach reality, so on. And what Hegel sees Kant as doing is sort of like postponing the event of encountering the truth about the self-understanding of the situation forever. I mean, postponing it, postponing and just waiting for new discoveries to come and then supplant some kind of like 
here is the truth and so on but why is hegel then if, if this is kant then this is, might be be taken as some kind of like obsessive ob obsessional mode of being obsessionally just grounding things and postponing encounter like the thing is too much to handle it it, it must be kept apart somewhere and this is the mode that I most often see when I discuss with academic philosophers. I, I think they're mostly, as some of the most brilliant ones would admit, they are in their bones Kantians, usually. Uh, and what Hegel does, he doesn't add anything to this picture. He only shows that what if the kind of like eternal postponement of the encounter with the thing hides its own nothingness. And this sort of leaves the whole situation open and then the question becomes, I mean, uh, what if truth is not some kind of like thing lurking, like preparing itself for encounterings in some romantic way, this type of like, he calls this even the, the ruse of like, it would be a ruse if, if it would be that way. Hmm. I mean, for for um, for those for those listening that that might need some sort of I don't know quick quick summary to to I think the important points Mika is making here in re in regards to Kant and Hegel. Um, how I understand what what Mika is trying to express is um, basically the rational antinomies in Kant where you can never really get the complete understanding of the truth are basically turned into the thing in itself in Hegel, where like basically the, the very rational antinomies of the process are the, the thing. That's, I mean, that's where the truth is located. Uh, um, so it, it, I think just to, to echo what Mika is saying, Hegel doesn't add anything to Kant necessarily, but what he emphasizes, I think, so strongly, especially in the introduction of the phenomenology of spirit, is this emphasis on the fact that we have to understand our own cognition if we're to understand the truth, and that we can't really understand the truth without you know, radically including our own cognition within it. Yeah, what, what I would like to add, and this is so important, yeah. To point out also is that what is the domain of for itself for Hegel? It's language. And what you were saying that I, I it, it, it pertains to this point that in la the language is the most truthful thing here. What, what we say, I mean, there's this constant trope that Hegel turns around and around in, in Hegel in phenomenology is that uh, he plays on the mine, the, the German mine, it's mine and Meinung, meaning something, and meinen. So he plays around with this character who sort of has an internal idea of what he or she wants to say, but cannot do it. it, it it's so tough. I mean, what I say, it doesn't reflect what I intended. What I intended was this and so on. This type of like person is always there at Hegel's mind when he's being the most concrete, being the most actual. And the... Uh, section that uh, Eric brought up, the psychology section of the phenomenology, it really deals with this phenomenon. How does the, th 
thing that we say sort of betray what we intended. Others take it apart and it, it becomes external and we no longer control what we said. I mean, I said something and it wasn't too clear and then you had to explain. And it is this type of like constant opening process that Hegel has in his mind when he is doing. And what's really the most speculative genius in Hegel is that when he takes language as a medium, he transforms, I think, the way that we use philosophical language. And that's the obstacle that maybe the mainstream would like shy away from with, with Hegel. But I think Hegel uh, reinvents language for the use of his philosophy to express something that I would call it sort of like a subject language, even one could say, language for expressing the absolute spirit. Yeah. yeah. Can, can I, I just want to emphasize for the for the for those watching that something important I think just happened in in the relation between Mika and I, where you see and and Eric uh, pointed this out earlier, is that when you study the phenomenology of spirit, you start to be able to observe yourself more closely. Like Mika, Mika was saying, like just the very thing Hegel was trying to to just the very thing we're trying to describe just happened between Mika and Mika and I right now, where. Like Mika says something and then he loses and then someone else tears it apart. And then like you, you start to be able to catch these things in, in day-to-day -day life and you start to be able to um, include yourself and your own language more radically in um, the logic of your own process of languaging in day-to-day -day life. And, and it's, and it's incredibly, um, I don't know, it, 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 it just fundamentally changes the way you are in conversation and 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 the way you are with others. I found. I want to I want to circle back to what Minka was saying, um, and 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 Kadel, you you mentioned this term, the the thing itself, the uh, that that Hegel uses, which sometimes it's translated as the crux of the matter or the main issue or something like that. And it occurs at the very transition from individual reason as it spills over outside of itself into the collective spirit. And the, the way this happened, and, and Mika actually described it, is that there emerges in reason this thing, this, this subject, this thing, it's the, the thing itself, that becomes the main thing, the heart of the matter. And, and that becomes sort of the pivot point around which reason, in order to further deal with it, to cognize it, it has to spill out into the, into the collective. It has to become a common possession of spirit itself. And I, I found, I think, the, one of, a really good example of this, and, and, and I think it's, it's really fascinating. And, and, it, and it involves the Lacanian notion of the short session, where in a, a psychoanalytic session, Lacan would, would often end the session very abruptly after 15, 20 minutes. Um, and, and in order to punctuate something that the analyzand would say. And what, what dawned on me what was going on, and, and this came to me after watching this, there's a great film that is going to be coming out released really soon called Adieu Lacan, which is um, a, a short a, a film 
that describes um, a woman's mem- memoir of, of her analysis with Lacan. And in it, you see her go through session after session. <clears throat> and each time that she mentions something about her father, Lacan gets up out of his chair, ends the session, gets the payment, you know, and, and it frustrates this woman to no end. But what it does is it punctuates this thing, the thing itself. It, 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 and it, it takes this insignificant signifier that the analyst then just kind of throws out there. <clears throat> Pardon me. And it turns it into to the thing itself. So the short session is able to highlight and punctuate that in such a way that it becomes the thing itself. And when that happens, it becomes spiritual. And that is what essentially the Lacanian psychoanalysis is trying to do is, is bring something out of the unconscious and spiritualize it such that it becomes the common property of spirit. And so we can, we can understand psychoanalysis as being this very process that Hegel has outlined in the transition from reason into spirit. And so I think we, could, we can find a lot of these different examples in, in diverse um, applications where we can observe these very things happening. And if we can read the phenomenology of spirit and understand this process, I think it will give us an advantage in, in being able to identify precisely what we need to do in terms of the project of constructing our own world spirit in, in, at our moment in history. That's a very good point, yeah. Uh, may, may I say, say something that occurred right. to me? I, I think it's, it's quite, maybe it would be interesting to think um, since uh, I think that many people would object to uh, connecting uh, Hegelian philosophy to psychoanalysis. Um, Maybe it's good to keep in mind that in Hegel's time, the kind of psychiatry, psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, none of that existed. He had none of that available to him. It was just a different time without conceptualization of madness that's nowadays abound in every form of pop culture. Just think about how much people talk about depressions and all kinds of things so loosely today. But he, what he had was his pen and paper. So what what should we say? How, how do we connect psychoanalysts then to what's Hegel's procedure in phenomenology of spirits? Well, uh, ultimately, it has to do with, with language and with history. I mean, it's a way of conceptualizing one's history of putting into words what was left unsaid, the wish which persists in the unconscious, as Freud would say. And um, something that um, Zizek has pointed out is that it's not too far away to put hysteria and history, link them together, to hysterize history, one could say. And Lacan even has a nice like neologism to capture this, the historical, a wordplay on hysteria and history. 
And the kind of like textbook Hegel that we have, they usually just say that Hegel gives this uh, dialectical history and implants it into epistemology and they just leave it there. Why not continue and say that, well, history actually doesn't really exist as such. I mean, as Lacan puts out in his first seminar, it, it, history is really only the past as it is historicized in the present moment. And what Hegel goes through, the very stations, the points where spirit dwells, it has to make for some kind of problem that it's grappling with. We could think of these as sort of like the type of fixation points in, in person's history, which are bound to emerge in a in an analytic uh, procedure. That's something that came to my mind. Yeah. Thanks, Vika. Yeah, go for it, Chitan. Yeah. You want to say something, Kettle? Go ahead. Well, just, I just I just resonated with <laughs> with the way Meek is trying to hysteric or like trying to link hysteria and history with this idea that you know history doesn't exist as such. That sort of come up with like these naive understandings of past and future, um, and that actually like for Hegel and like one of my interpretations of absolute knowing would be that, that the past and the future are are kind of always existing from the standpoint of the present. And that that you know to really take a moment or to take a position of absolute knowing and is is of is of course to in some sense leave Hegel behind because you're you're you you know you're you're constituting a past and a future and 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 observing from from your present standpoint. Um, so so I mean you're you're observing things and you're dealing with knowledge and you're dealing with a situation that that's radically different from the one Hegel was in. So and I think that that that's that's the whole point of the the sieve, as you said, Chitin. Just to sort of uh, bring back, I want I want to respond to this very interesting discussion between Kant and Hegel that Mika has brought up. And before that, you know, I would like to sort of, uh, when I read these philosophers, and especially when you read Hegel, you know, when we were discussing this earlier, that how do we read in in that sense? And one of the things that, uh, one of the things that I, I, I do not think that the task today is to make people Hegelian in that sense, to make people believe in what Hegel was saying. I think the task today actually is in many ways that in what ways do we make people realize that they have to engage with their own contradictions? Isn't it? You know, that, you know, I don't mind somebody being a Delusian, Foucauldian, Wittgenstein, any of these thinkers that you can think of possibly in this world. As long as you are ready to engage with the contradiction of what you are saying, whatever you're bringing, and proper philosophical moment today actually is uh, this struggle between doubt and certainty. Now, as Alinka Zupanchik sort of very beautifully talks about it in one of her lectures in that sense, that uh, that how do we find certainty through this doubt of the contradiction? And, you know, and minute you start doing that, you are entered into the dialectical space. Dialectics actually is that space in which uh, this kind of a relationship between doubt and certainty becomes possible, in which we are ready to take a position. It's not a, it's a, it's a, it's a space, and, and as Derek was talking about it a little earlier, that you have to bring the contradictions together. Of course, you have to bring the contradictions together, but we have to take a position, and yet we have to be, in some senses, uh, um, not be anxious about its own gap and moving forward from it. You know? That's the real 
it's not that you will not take any position okay all of these negativities come together and it's all hunky dory great no it's not you know they <laughs> the real challenge of taking a position in that taking a decision in that moment mm-hmm. you know and frankly derrida got that in 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 his many of his you know questions you know when you think of derrida deconstruction derrida deconstruction is not simply this this problem that oh world has no meaning you know everything is meaningless the meaning is decentered and so on and so forth derrida problem is even when meaning is decentered how do you create meaning how are you able to as a subject find that that meaning in that sense and that is again you know a uh, very hegelian uh, question emerges from not this in that sense but the hegelian question that emerges from this actually is that how does a subject find this certainty even when he knows that he's sitting on contradictory ground and he has to take a position and you know one way to take a position is that okay you there is no contradiction i cover that gap up great hunky dory i am in the modern science world and techniques and you know this, this techni technicization of of all sciences in some senses and the other is uh, i am always in doubt i can't take a position everything is right that there's not there's no uh, no uh, way to take a position this is the truth that you know truth exists and both those things actually suffer from their own um, uh, inner turmoil in, in 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 that sense and actually this movement towards dialectics actually first happened in kant and this is where i'm sort of trying to take it if you want to say something uh kettle uh, yeah so i just think it's so i it's just i think it's so i'm going to and quickly pass it back to you i just want to say that this i think i totally agree with what you're saying and just that 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 this this space i think is simultaneously the space of of love or is somehow overlap with love some, somehow like this and and that p- people today are struggling to take a position um people are struggling today to to attach to something because of the gap involved in it and 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 that it'll turn into its opposite totally you know that that struggle is very real for us that we can only attach ourselves to something when we are completely you know when we think that a certainty has to completely exclude all doubt and that's the problem of cogito in the, in some sense like hans cogito in, you know in, in in that thinking of question subject of the unconscious uh if you think about it but you know uh, but this question actually first becomes very very real to us in kant not in hegel um, you know if you look at uh, lesson nothing's first few pages you would find that you no know, if you look at plato's uh, idealism in that sense the, the the reality was always behind the appearance you know there there is a, there is appearance and then they have to go behind it to reach the reality in the in kant you you came to that that moment when you realize that appearance is the you don't have to go behind the appearance it is in the locus of the appearance itself that any question of reality resides and you know uh, um, uh, that that question and in hegel um, this moment you know which is why when i'm saying that when you read a philosopher and more so hegel than any other philosopher in that way it is that you are not trying to go behind him you are not trying to tell everybody that okay what you're saying is not true there is something behind what you're doing which is true that is not the purpose the purpose is actually to engage with the contradiction of that appearance itself of that moment itself you know only thing that hegel does over the only switch that hegel makes and that as kedel nicely put it was that he puts that contradiction in the thing itself rather than in in, in the reason as kant would put it you know kant that contradiction arises in reason and in hegel that that thing it, it is in the very structure of reality itself is almost an you know, incompleteness of reality he is forcing godel and quantum mechanics in many ways um, to think to that 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 kind of a question but 
the, the real actually the challenge then and for me becomes to think through this question of doubt and certainty in Hegel and from there I think one of the things that we don't talk about enough uh, in Hegel which we should and which Zizak is actually putting up front in, in today's times is is following contingency that how do you think uh, contingency in Hegel completely Hegel is, is, is one of the people who are actually emphasizing upon contingency we know that you know Hegel is somebody who's well, contingency I mean very something very specific uh, 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 something which cannot be predicted or calculated in advance is there something radically contingent possible first question should be that in newton's world it is not we know if you know the order of variables you can find all the answers it's only in the post newtonian world that we we can think of a moment which cannot be calculated in advance and you know as, as uh, mika was pointing out to us how do we think through history when we completely affirm contingency well, history is history because in many ways it excludes the contingent. Um, you know, how do we think through these things together? And that, 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 that's, that's, that's an interesting discussion to think about in a, through the Hegelian, um, you know? Yeah, I, if I may say, I, I think that you're treading on, uh, on a very dangerous ground since if you are affirming the type of contradiction as inherent to a position, um, I think it, it's quite dangerous if we then take Hegel to affirm a contradiction in the way that almost like everything goes, like everything is just as like um, contradictory as everything else, the philosopher says. So this is not Hegel. I mean, he has the concept of determinate negation exactly for this purpose. And here I would like to propose uh, kind of like my interpretation of, I mean, coming from the viewpoint where people are saying that Hegel is too abstract. Uh, people are actually saying that he is obscure and so on. But when you read Hegel, you don't find anyone who is as concrete as Hegel. Hegel doesn't say things that he cannot back up himself in his system. He always has some way of making it clear, of showing what he means. He doesn't leave things abstract. And it's just a mark of a lazy mind to say Hegel is, this is, I mean, I, I, I have no other way, way to say than it's enemy propaganda. You should turn off the computer <laughs> and walk away right away when you hear the statements. Thank you. Uh, Mika, yeah, are you getting me wrong? I'm not saying anything goes. In fact, I'm saying the right opposite to that. That's not the point. The yeah. point, point is that when anything is done, and if you look at phenomenal spirit, the structure is like that. He's taking the existing philosophical position that exists, and he's not saying that I will start from a concrete full ground from which my theory works, and then I will engage from that stable ground with other theoretical systems. That is not Hegel. Hegel is saying that I can find my ground from any theoretical system by engaging with a gap within it. That's the concrete work that needs to be done. Isn't it? That is how Hegel starts his book. If you read his book, he, it, is, it is actually engaging with almost all philosophical systems that existed before him. And he's not engaging with them simply as saying they are all wrong or they are all right. In fact, he's concretely doing the work required to find the gap within those systems. And it's a very informed discussion that actually happened on this question between Tobi Mamba and Jijak and Elinka Zupanchik in one of these uh, conferences that happened recently on, 
on psychoanalysis actually and i found uh, to be a must point very instructive and i won't get into the whole discussion of sexuality that happened but in the moment in which to be mama was trying to as as normally would happen happened with hegel something think very something very hegel within hegel which hegel could not think in some senses which was this discussion on infinity actually that there was a moment in hegel's writing on mathematics and he was sort of quote, sort of quoting his early thesis of hegel and he was mentioning that hegel was thinking that that mathematics cannot think differential uh, differential calculus in some senses it it can uh, you know infinity can only be grasped through um Um, philosophy you know what what is very instructive there is that uh, and he sort of points it out that mathematics was actually able to think through it later on mathematics was actually able to move past the you know uh, you know it's there in his book also uh, this example and this is not nothing anti hegelian about it if you take hegel's logic seriously it was bound to happen if any system of science uh, practices engages with its own contradiction it will move past them there is nothing um, uh, surprising about it uh, in 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 that manner in, in today's time and which is why we need to start thinking very seriously about um, uh, not this any position goes that's of course a problem but in what ways do we have to engage with different positions that question is still open even when we are uh, you know the, the simplistic thinking cannot be that we have the truth and others don't have it that dichotomy no longer works you know that we are in some way repository of truth and others don't have it we have to function with different truths around us to find the gap within them and how do we think to that um that question on that on that point chetan i would i was thinking earlier exactly that the point that you made about infinity is that this notion of absolute knowing the identity of of <clears throat> identity and difference uh mathematics and set theory cannot conceive that but category theory can and it's it's like you can't just shut it out and say oh well math can't do that well yeah i can but you have to sublate that to the next level and you just have to wait for the development of it through through spirit right history and and eventually it'll get there yeah exactly you know and and that's something we need to uh, be very conscious of today that we don't operationalize hegel as this this standpoint through which we are judging all other forms of practices that actually becomes can become very uh, uh, unproductive in in many senses you know hegel has to be operationalized from within different practices that's the challenge you know that's the that's that's the challenge that ubamba is throwing to us in, in some senses uh, which i find very very important today and especially in the context he's throwing it into the context of sexuality that you know uh, you know he's trying to question this this binary that 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 is immerse sexuality with uh, you know and difference in sexuality without um, you know uh, the gap in in some senses that we have the he's saying that sexuality always comes with its own antagonisms in all in all its uh, appearance the challenge is to struggle with that that appearance in the in some senses and i think if one thing hegel teaches us in philosophical spirit is that whatever is underneath will come on the surface there is uh, there is this progression always in some senses taking place in all systems around us you know just, and just, and what what yeah, is on ahead, the surface what is on the surface will be only internalized what you experience at the level of spirit there is a withdrawal and a and a, and a reflection Absolutely. back into yeah. self consciousness yeah. which is really what 
absolute knowing yes. is. Yes. It is always faces its own failure in that. Sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just think in in regards to this conversation about operationalizing Hegel within different practices through um, sort of a, 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 the use of um, the contradiction. Um, and also sort of, you know, and, and against this idea that it's not just, okay, when, when we talk about Hegel and the contradiction, it's not just anything goes. Um, I, I think that, that what sort of makes it very practical and immediate for people, like without sort of them having to go through Hegel, is again, that, that I, again, this space of working with the contradiction and the gap has something to do with love. And, and so the, the very being, the very way in which one engages with the contradiction um, matters, you know, like, 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 and you can tell, you know, like you can, you can tell if someone is trying to use the contradiction in your speech or the, 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 the antinomies of your reason in a way to do violence to you. Uh, to to hurt you, to to harm you, uh, that that they don't really have your best interest at heart, um, and and also to sort of think. I think I think Hegel is very an absolute. The idea of absolute knowing, the identity of identity and difference, is so um, very practical to think about spaces of love, um, my love with my partner, or or the contradictions I've been through with previous partners. Um, it's not simply that anything goes or, or, or you know, uh, or, or, or that there's no progress. That might not be the right word, but, but that, that this is somehow deeply practical and deeply concrete. And, and I think I wanted to connect that also to what, what Mika was saying about Hegel, you know, not really being this abstract, obscure thinker, but actually insanely concrete and, and, and and perhaps why people have such a strong reaction against him is because they'll be, I think, forced to face their own self-relating negativity, their own contradictions. Um, so I don't know what I want to sort of maybe expand on a little bit is that in my process of coming to understand phenomenology of spirit specifically, one of the things that that I was sort of working through in my own spiritual consciousness was this sort of ideology of non-attachment. So like I, I sort of recognized that on the horizon of, of spirit, let's say, there was kind of like this tendency in the West towards Buddhism and non-attachment that you shouldn't attach too, too close to things. And even there's this one line in a book I was reading before I started my PhD, which for some reason stuck with me which is this idea that um, that non-attachment and love are equal to light. So like this idea that you can really love once you, you stop attaching to things and you let go of everything. But I think that what a, the dialectical process and, and what a sort of Hegelian phenomenology point to is actually that you can attach to things and you can take a strong position on things and you can also let go as well, or or you can or you can hold in such a way as that the thing becomes what it is. 
And it's true. So it, it's you really surrender to a thing. Like that in attaching to something, you have to surrender to something authentically. And that in sort of attaching and surrendering to something, the thing will transform. You know, the relation will transform. The person will transform. And, and whatever the truth of that transformation is, whatever the result of the process is, you, you can't know ahead of time. Um, and, and I just think that that way of, of understanding is so difficult to put into language. One, it's so difficult to put into language. I, it's a, almost an impossible task. I'm, I'm actually happy that I was able to, to bring up some of these points now because they're, they're things that I have wrestled with for years. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, but, just, but just that I, I think in Hegel, you do have this, I guess, let's say a dialectic between attachment and non-attachment and that, and that there is attachment in Hegel, and, and, but, but it's not an eternal attachment. It's, it's you, you attach to see what the truth of the thing is. And, and you, you surrender to it. You, you let go to it. You, it's a radical submission. It's kind of a, like a rhythm and an accent, as he says in the preface to the work. But really, I, I think the kind of debate of, um, I mean, it's it's not even a debate. When, when somebody claims that love is something ineffable, completely out of bounds of rational mind, something that you cannot express with words because words are uh, limited and love is boundless, so on, these type of arguments, um, well, Hegel wouldn't trust head first into arguing with this person i mean saying that non-attachment is truth or anything like that i think that the view would uh for hegel be in the in like in the fact that they are already engaged in the modern project of trying to articulate their self-knowing and in their account of self-knowing they necessitate this type of reference to some in, ineffable something which always eludes and they become sort of like a I would say some kind of a Teflon personality that uh, doesn't stick to anything and can always sort of like easily overcome every opposition to their arguments with a claim to having an inner knowledge inner sense of love within them and this is the type of person who's uh, really the account of self-knowledge that they have, Hegel does take it seriously. He he really does uh, uh, explain what he sees as the most essential uh, terms in this, but it all happens in language. It's always within language. And when we are saying that there is this kind of like internal purpose or love, or whatever that cannot be expressed language always did already express that it's what it is it belongs to the weirdly guides to actuality to that which works which exists already when it is coming into focus of consciousness and it's this, this type of like um self-knowing reason or self-knowing uh self-actualizing and self-knowing and uh, this type of uh, reason which is the figure of discussion in the formative chapters of the work actually 
but he has in this nice uh, formulation that it's thinking becomes sort of like a musical tingling of, the, of jingling of bells and the smell of incense and it sort of like loses itself into unhappiness as soon as it's it's like let's go of this musical thinking of it that it has yeah you know uh, why yeah uh, just to sort of take it back to love i think uh, there's something very very important in what kedel was saying in fact you know to me at least uh, love is this radical affirmation of contingency in many ways you know if you think about it um the 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 point of love it's 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 peak is a point when you can radically accept the other in some sense in all its contingent possibilities you know when you are when you're not asking the other to be predetermined by your own rules in some you know and there is there is a lot of lot of debate between how do we look at romantic love uh, at a, at a certain point even lacan was uh, you know for a long time actually on this side of the fence where he was he was not able to see the the point of it in in, in if i if you want to say it and if you really take it to its end the way that point emerges at least in, in, in to us actually is 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 in some senses uh, will take us back to dialectics which we we can think about uh, it is that in romantic love uh, you have to as jack sort of very nicely puts it you have to completely radically affirm the contingency of the other you know you are all happy you you're singing dancing you know you're living a good life you come back home you masturbate little you sleep you have good food and suddenly you fall in love one day you know and suddenly your life goes upside down and 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 you do not know who that will be from which religion he'll belong to which caste which race which you know it can happen at any point of time and then you have to learn to deal with it and there is no guarantee that it will go in certain direction you know and your your lot of movies actually romcoms especially are built upon this ideology that it will be fine go do it uh, but that they missed the point in, in in that sense that 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 love is actually affirmation of not knowing that it will be fine and yet being able to enter into it you can't do it anything as, as a subject you have to completely affirm that um, um that space from which uh, you know you can't direct that process from the outside anymore in some senses when you actually fall in love i don't i'm not sure if you have those heartbreaks and stuff but at, if you actually fall in love you can't direct that process from the outside that is why there is so much anxiety that is why there is so much need to control at at so much times and so on and so forth you know and i think it yeah the thing it's interesting that that hegel uh equates the the sphere of love in the family to the this netherworld religion or this law of the netherworld you know or it's this it's this uh kind of otherworldly law that sets itself in opposition to the and it's feminine it's this masculine phallic law of the state right and 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 how it it creates this conflict in in spirit between these two opposing forces yeah. no I think that's yeah. super important, Eric. And one of the things, actually, I, I had a a brief conversation with Zizek about, which which he he seemed to appreciate in any case, is that actually Hegel doesn't spend enough time working through that aspect of the dialectic. He mentions it; it only takes up like one page where he's talking about that, uh, and he very rarely, often, ever mentions sexual difference either. 
but but indeed like your point is i think incredibly important like he he emphasizes the 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 family and the law of the family as like yeah this nether world uh it's very very interesting i love that <laughs> section i think it can be more further developed this this these ideas i just wanted to say one more thing you know and uh, uh, getting to your point about attachment and this fear of attaching too much actually is the is 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 the same side of 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 in, in the other side of this uh, uh, this problem of contingency in some senses that in western world especially in, even in, in in india in in, in its modern uh, context the non attachment has become anti attachment in many senses you know you you we have we have become we we take non attachment to be this anxiety with attachment itself this fear of attachment has become attached to no, you know when there is violence there is non violence and there is anti violence for example non violence is not this complete complete giving up of violence no non violence is taking responsibility for your own violence in some sense if you put it very crudely or crassly in in that sense isn't it non violence is not simply a, a space from which you can say i have nothing to do with violence no you have to take responsibility for it you know if you if anything with gandhi you you we realize that you know is it, it is in that sense non attachment is also not a point of saying that i have nothing to do with attachment it's a point when you take responsibility of the attachments that you you, you are engaging with you know but at what point has that non attachment become anti attachment you know well, and that is the hegelian dialectical moment over there uh, well, that, I, i think i think the I hegelian mean, point there the movement yeah. there would be precisely what we see in in star wars with with the jedi of uh, course the jedi the jedi have they're, they're right there they're not allowed to to be attached to to anything right they're not allowed to have romantic attachments and so on and and so this this very fear of of attachment actually has this reflex where it creates this greater desire for attachment that ends up creating darth vader you know <laughs> 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 yeah. yeah. You know, so. I mean, the, yes. um, maybe maybe we could also say something about what would be a proper like Hegelian act. What would be to truly be an actor in the world and not some kind of like. I mean, there's this popular meme going around in internet which I very much appreciate. Uh, it's combining the music from Oblivion from the online uh, role playing game to encounter random encounters on streets showing people acting um, in nonsensical and even absurd manner and in mo mo massive multiplayer online games you have these non player characters npcs which have certain music for them and the meme is to connect these like random encounters with people on the street with this uh, non player character music and show the kind of like absurdity of our current situation in different forms and it's a sort of like a sta state where there there really isn't too much like activity really going on i mean they are really active i mean doing violent things and shouting and speaking and everything but there there doesn't seem to be a true act going on like but i think this comes from zizek uh, and so on but uh the true act would be the uh symbolic act of forming one's self conception in the way that structures the situation so that you become this uh non player character who say gets really riled up at the streets at some person who just 
happens to touch your car or something like that. And the character of beautiful soul of like somebody who constantly feels oppressed at the street, I mean, has to take this radical withdrawal into oneself from the violence of the world, the corruption and well, everything that I said about already about modernity, it's, it's there. But this type of personality who has this need to withdraw into themselves from the brutalities of the world, the, the act that they have done is to conceptualize themselves and their situation so that they have to do that. It has become sort of like mandatory for them. And the true act is just the symbolic like act of, of, of forming the space of knowledge for oneself. Well, the, the, the act in Zizek, as far as I understand the theory of the act, is that you 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 act in such a it's a symbolic act in relation to the real, not the imaginary, and that you retroactively you sort of retroactively um change the conditions of possibility. Your act retroactively changes your conditions of possibility. Like the conditions of possibility didn't didn't exist before your act. They were created by your your very act itself. Like like I, I and I and I mean I, if I'm sort of taking that theory, if I'm understanding that that theory properly, I, I I think in some sense that's how I've tried to approach not only love but also um, also my relationship to academia in some sense is that like I haven't I've tried to act in such a way as as that. Like I didn't see the conditions of possibility within academia that I wanted to follow. And I sort of tried to act in such a way as that I create the conditions which I would like to see. To see. You know, if you think about it, taking this further, you know, as Vijay could say, histories, you are retroactively created in the same manner, as you rightly said it, you know, that we all create our history from the very contingency in that sense. That is the only way you bring these things together. History is never given to you from advance. It is something we retroactively create from a certain paradigm, a certain horizon, if you think about it. That is why each context has its own history. For instance, today we can write the history of, of the whole world or, or, or of the mankind through the class dynamics. But we can only do that post Marx. It's a retroactive creation of history. It's not that Marx, class existed before Marx. No, that's not the point. That's too simplistic in that sense that class was always there and, you know, we couldn't see it. That's one way to think about it. The other is you could only emerge in that. We could only think through the history of man through, through class because we retroactively could create it after Marx came on the scene. Isn't it? Uh, and to sort of take this further and connect it back to this question of love, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think Hegel's love is in, in this precise sense is not this love of the union of two people, this complete, very healthy union. It's a love, as Zilke would put it, I will stand guard for your solitude. I have, I will not find this union with you, but I will stand guard to your own solitude. I will, I will protect it. I will, I will, uh, you know. And it, 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 is, it is that love which actually completely affirms this retroactive creation of possibilities. Else, this complete union will destroy all possibilities, all potentialities of that space. You know, the challenge is how do we think through these possibilities in the retroactive, uh, as you very rightly said, this, this, this breaking away of linearity of time in some senses. You know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I like this. And, and almost... 
also trying to connect this. So con connecting love, love is not the union of two people necessarily like a he healthy normative, normative union, but, but standing guard for your solitude. Also connecting that to the other solitude, connecting that also maybe to the topic of, of religion. Like the idea that religion is not sort of like, yes, we do need to come together. Yes, we need community and we need communion and forms of communion. But also kind of like we need the social spaces that allow us to have our aloneness, that we're not sort of forced into situations where we feel um, sort of bound to some organic totality uh, to maybe connect that, connect this to uh, Mika's points about Hegel writing at the birth of modernity and sort of modernity being this sort of fragmentation away from some organic social harmony. Um, that actually what we're dealing with in the modern world is sort of the cultivation of new forms of aloneness and also new forms of togetherness, but informed by that that deeper sense of aloneness? Well, I think, I think on that remark, I, I think what Hegel shows in, in this book is that spirit at the level of the collective always fails and reflects back into the individual and that's precisely how history moves forward how spirit moves through failure right and so it's not that we are supposed to get completely alienated in the collective project the religion the politics the nation state the whatever but that we are going to do that to a degree inevitably but then that's going to fail and we're going to retreat back into our solitude. And, but from that, we're going to take something back from that experience. And then we're going to engage in that again. And so there's this kind of cycle, I think, of reaching out into spirit, advancing it forward to the point where it fails and then retreating back and then doing that again. Nice. Very no. nice. Yeah. Erinnerung. Yeah, Erinnerung would be the movement. Just. Mm. You know, uh, if we, uh, go ahead, Chitan. Yeah, I just think, just quickly pointing out that, you know, if we take Eric's point very seriously, we, we have to, if you think where Hegel, at least in one of the places that Hegel locates religion, is this problem that there is something that alienates uh, us from us itself. You know, there is something which, which, a certain kind of an alienation that takes place between two self-identical objects. One becomes two, and there's a there's an alienation in that in in the, in that division itself that 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 occurs, which which cannot be, uh, you know, uh, thought through the immediacy of that in that. Uh, which is why, if you think about religion in Hegel, there's a, there's a development of religion. You know, there's a natural religion, there's a revealed religion, and there's a movement between religion of art, and then you get to you know. And that 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 whole movement actually is is, is actually dependent upon this um, this question of uh, uh, you know in what ways does um, does our own uh, our own being becomes alienated from us um, you know as 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 uh, uh, Eric is pointing out there's, a, there's always at the level of collective there's always a failure that that something will will experience and and the only movement possible actually is. Mm, 
and is not through this this immediate hiding of that union or thinking that we have reached a point from which that elimination will never occur but to always understand that at whatever point something will come to its own surface it will get eliminated from itself you know in that sense absolute knowledge is not not the end of the story in fact it is just a specific point a asymmetrical point in the journey itself you know and how do we think through that uh, that that is there's actually a reading uh, which give, is given by Frederick Jameson, which claims that, I mean, I think that he's not alone, but that the, really, really the uh, narrative endpoint of the phenomenology comes already at the end of the uh, chapter on spirits. And Shibansis makes this point that what we see in the religion chapters is really like the, like, materially existing practices of spirits and the phenomenology of spirit itself it has two major triads it has the consciousness self-consciousness and reason as the first triad which uh, which can be thought of as like a synchronic triad they are present like simultaneously and then there is the triad of uh, spirit religion and absolute knowledge which can be thought of as the kind of like diachronic uh, triad of spirits, the historically developing spirits, one could say. And when the spirit chapter comes to the end, it, there is this uh, enigmatic point where, where Hale is thinking that the, the wound of the spirit, it's, he's saying that the wound of the spirit will heal and it leaves no scars behind. Is this enigmatic statement that he just drops there, and what does it mean, and so on? That, but Zizek gives the reading that the the really the wound of the spirit is is in in fact self-inflicted, and the term spirit itself doesn't stand for some kind of like thinking substance or anything like that, which would have the wound. But it stands for something completely non-substantial, in fact. And spirit is in itself nothing but, quoting Zizek, a uh, process of overcoming natural immediacy or the cultivation of this immediacy of withdrawing into oneself or the process of alienating from it, coming from uh, absolute recoil. And Zizek is saying that spirit is subjectivity, the subject of the process, which is the absolute and immense power of negativity. And quoting Sizek again, uh, the power of introducing a gap or cut into the given immediate substantial unity, the power of differentiating, of abstracting, of tearing apart and tearing a self-standing what is in reality part of organic unity and so on. That's really... Yeah, I think there's so many gems in here for people who are who are listening or, or who who watch this later or or re revisit it. I, I was in particular particular. I I hadn't thought before of um, the way you divided up the phenomenology of spirit between two major triads, which is which is an, interesting to think. Um, the triad of consciousness, self consciousness, and reason, and then another triad of spirit, religion, and AK, and one being synchronic, the other being diachronic. These are Really interesting ideas, and and also both, uh, uh, well, all of you, Eric, Chitan, and and Mika, pointing out um, these 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 relationships between 
the collective and and the withdrawal i think i don't know how many people are are dealing with this in a very pragmatic way but i know i have in the last two two years dealing with immense failure on the level of collective spirit um and dealing with dealing with withdrawal and then and then sort of the also the counter movement of 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 really using that self-relating negativity really using the time of patience what what hegel calls in the preface you know time of of patience um suffering and um i forget the the third one i, I wrote it down so i can mention it see so, yeah seriousness suffering and patience to to really use that alone space um as 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 the labor of the notion to to then to then return to collective spiritual practice in a new way um so i i really think this is this is this is great stuff this has been a really great uh discussion and i would just ask uh, each of you if if you would um if you have any any final thoughts or concluding thoughts for 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 this discussion um that let's open up the space for that what is the phenomenology of spirit? Maybe what? Maybe if if any of you have have something that either you want to reflect on from the conversation, or what you would like to leave viewers with. Um, well, well uh, personally, I would just like 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 to say that I admire really the the balls, the what what Hegel had to do the work of phenomenology of spirit. In fact, I mean, what kind of background he did he establish the work itself? I mean. As far as I know, I know he constructed. His, he was desperately constructing some kind of system, and philosophy, completing several drafts. I mean, four or five, and just tossing them aside as he found something wanting in them, and starting from scratch again. And at the time when he was becoming Hegel, uh, he wasn't published very. I mean, he had some works going on, but he. Uh, was basically in dire straits. He had no tenable job, no prospect of getting one either. And he had an illegitimate child on the way. And well, Hegel's confidence and both also despair at the moment, they are really the key thing for me to admire in the work. Um. I think for me, the, the experience of, of reading the phenomenology of spirit um, has, has been so formative. And, um, you know, I think, I think that that line from the preface that's, that's so eloquently translated by in the uh, by, by e translation, the spirit wins to its truth only when it finds itself utterly torn asunder. <laughs> that that kind of becomes a motto for for life, <laughs> um, if I can dare to be so cliche. <laughs> uh, and that and that that becomes something you can really um, internalize and 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 make a part of your practical existence. That has real effects on how you relate to yourself, how you relate to others in your life, how you relate to the world. Um, and the 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 whole project and and the 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 formation that it provides the the reader i think has been um something i'll, I'll cherish 
and and I'll always want to come back to it and and make it close to my heart, you know, so that I don't stray from what it provides. Uh, because I've seen uh, so clearly in my own life how how transformative it can be. Um, and and I think it is something that is so desperately needed in our world right now, a world that is being torn apart, being torn asunder. Spirit is being torn asunder by its own very apparent contradictions. And, and so there's an opportunity in the darkness that we're living in now for spirit to win to its truth. And, and I, um, I just want to extend my hope and encouragement to all of our, our uh, listeners um, that um, you, can, you can do this. You can, if you're thinking about reading Hegel and, and you're daunted by it or you're, you're not sure if you can do it, it's, it's possible and it's, and it's worth it. Uh, very nicely put, actually, Eric and Mika. Um, to me, actually, um, you know, Hegel responds to a very deep problem within myself, actually, which I've been experiencing since long time. To be honest, you know, uh, I, I've been I've been experiencing this strong um, um, uh, realization that I, I'm living in a very fragmented world. You know, where the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. You know, when I and you know, and and more and more we are isolated into a world where movement is no longer possible. We can't think of movement in, in, in any real sense of experiential movement in that sense. Uh, even if you if you if I if you wish to engage with two different systems of knowledge, there is strong resistance towards even doing. Forget those experiences that a, a child is supposed to have to become a man in in some senses, you know, the initiatory experiences. But even something. As simple as experiencing different systems of knowledge is resisted from the institutional mechanisms within in today's time. And Hegel actually gave me a way to think through movement in some senses. Think through a way in which I can I can affirm the space for movement in my life. You know, uh, and as Eric said it, you know, that happens because you're ready to accept and take responsibility for for the failure that exists in those movements itself. There is no movement possible without encountering that that failure and taking, you know, and working uh, through that. You know, and that movement is only possible, at least to me, uh, when we take Hegel's position very seriously that the truth doesn't exist in immediacy. You know, one has to find a way to move past that immediacy. You know, there there is a mediation existence in in the very immediacy of of a phenomenon that 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 you encounter. And unless we take that very seriously, this question of mediation that that exists in the very very encountering something with the, with a sense, with the very encounter with the infinite that that exists within within ourselves. And you know, and this encounter always determined with with an excess, whether it is a form, excess of form over content or content over form. And the challenge that Hegel is giving us is that not do not take that excess as an error, as something that needs to be discarded to be kept. That excess itself is a site of truth. It is itself where some work needs to be done, itself where new content needs to be created. That excess is not something which is a waste, which is supposed to be thrown out and you know. 
um, um, and and we can keep the so-called the, the nice food inside. Uh, what you what you're throwing out actually is the real um, real thing in in many senses. And at least it is that is what I experience when I read uh, Hegel in some sense, and that is what experience I think everybody can share that that position from whichever different life orientation that people are coming from. We all can engage with our own excess seriously in that sense. And, you know, think. Great. Um, so I think if I have any concluding thoughts, um, yeah, I think I, I started by sort of saying that I, I had been immersed in the evolutionary worldview and that took me so far in terms of thinking about the past and the future, but it left me with many questions about, about my own position within history. And, and I guess specifically, like the most concrete things are related to, let's say, contradiction and love um, and the movement of contradiction and love. So I think this conversation helped me to approach some of those things Um in a way, maybe I, I haven't before, and I, I thank all of you for for this conversation because um, many things came up and and uh, allowed for for fresh reflection on this text in a way that I, I hadn't before. And I think it's very valuable. I think it's just very valuable to have this space because because oftentimes when I was reading the phenomenology of spirit, um, you know, it can also feel very isolating and alone because not many people have really. <laughs> read it or they might they just how do you engage with engage with someone of a conversation about it so in itself it can be be very very um isolating so so i mean i guess the final thing i'll say to end on that point is that i i have been motivated to to start a course on on the phenomenology of spirit um and i hope that that can also provide a container for um, anyone out there who wants to tackle this text for the first time or tackle it for uh, a, a second time in a, in a social space or community to, to join. Um, there is a, a link in the description if you're interested in joining. The course will start uh, January, uh, so yeah, January 15th, 2022, so just over a month away. Um, and there's uh, all, all the information you can find in that link and, and to reach out and contact me if um, if you have any questions about, about that process. So uh, thank you, Mika. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Chitan. And uh, thanks to all our viewers. All right. Thank you, Gadel. It was a trip. Yeah, it was.